This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... PeterCon! Slow burn horror scenarios! The Paper Crunch! And the Fresno Nightcrawler! Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. It's time to dust off, as one would reach into one's uh, closet and pull out a neglected bit of luggage, a segment that we haven't heard from for a while because... uh, I don't know, for reasons that currently elude me, international travel or, you know, just most travel has kind of been off the boards for a little while. But, uh, Ken, you, uh, you've you been going to conventions throughout the year, but you went to a location we have yet to discuss on the show because it was your first time. And it is far, far away from Chicago because you went to PeerCon in Poland and uh, checked out that event in the Poznan area. And uh, we want to hear all about your adventures. So my understanding of PeerCon having... Uh, heard about it when I was there at a much smaller convention, is that this is a big consumer show, and I think one that is not just tabletop, but is like multi-track. Is that correct? Yes, but not. it's it's not quite DragonCon focused on movie stars and TV stars, and there, there aren't like a million events where you meet the stars of The Witcher or whatever. It's mostly the multimedia lobe of it is anime, and manga, and computer games. And that seems to be the other, the glossy coating on the RPG almond at the center of the show. The gaming component is is big, but does not dominate. But the pop culture component, maybe because it's in Poland, not in a place where Hollywood stars can do domestic travel to, is pretty much not Hollywood big business or even straight to cable or streaming stuff. It's, yeah, I m- imagine it costs extra to get Shatner to get on a plane to uh, to Poznan. I, I imagine it probably costs even more than it costs Shatner to walk down the street to, uh, you know, Pasadena or wherever. And so what sort of attendance are we uh, looking at here? The number I've heard bandied around is 50,000. I, I would believe it from the basis of this show. It's done on a, a sort of a an international, it's sort of their international trade fair facility in Poznan. And what that is, is it's a bunch of buildings, including two or three respectable convention halls around a sort of central plaza. And so the central plaza was always slammed with people. The vendor hall was not jam packed, but was pretty packed. But again, it was a hall, you know, maybe about the size of the Gen Con dealers hall, but with wider aisles. So it didn't feel as packed, even though there may have been as many people streaming back and forth through there at any given time as there are at a Gen Con. 
and then you, there's, you know, like with every enormous convention, there's whole areas that I didn't even go. There's like cosplay headquarters and, and LARPs and places where uh, people can go listen to science if that's uh, something that they wanted to do. So there's lots of other things going on. There's a couple of theaters. I think one of them does anime and one of them does other stuff. But most of the program, uh, Robin, uh, and this is literally the only downside of PeerCon, is written in a language that I don't read. So it was harder for me to get a vibe as to what's going on, except the vibe of lots and lots and lots of poles having a blast and uh, running around, many of them dressed as kitties, apparently. As in uh, K-I-T-T-I-E-S. Yes, that's the kind. That's the kind of kitty exactly that they were dressed as, or or some other sort of darling anime animal. Uh, there was lots of tails and ears at the show, or even than Gen Con, I would say we're at Dragon Con levels of other kin uh, interrelationship here. And lots and lots of cosplay, but not quite at the Dragon Con level for your Spider's Man and your Cat's Girl and the rest of it. Cat's Woman, I should say. Excuse me. And so I guess that was the thing that, that struck you about the, the local variation in nerd culture in uh, in Poland. So, as we learned previously, there are lots of role players who speak quite good English and can understand a panel, and uh, I assume... That is what they had you over there to do. So uh, did you give the standard panels one would expect, or were you given other assignments? I think they were pretty standard. Um, Mike Mason, beloved uh, Call of Cthulhu line developer, was my fellow guest, uh, along with Jason Durrell, also from Chaosium. And so we did a panel on the Cthulhu Mythos. I did a solo panel on, you know, hey, it's Ken Height, because I was the guest of honor. I also did a solo panel on killing vampires and making vampire which uh, perhaps predictably got most of its audience and questions from fans of vampire. <laughs> How to prevent us vampires from being killed. There was, there was one wonderful woman who asked a question about nice black agents without me even having to beg for it. So that was delightful. And I certainly gave her her shout out at the show. We also did panels on uh, sort of the, the business of gaming, how to be a game designer. That was with Mike and myself and again with Jason. And then I, either was invited onto or crashed, and I kind of don't care which, a panel with Mike Pondsmith and uh, the wonderful, the evanescent, the uh, transcendent Liz Danforth on gaming in the 70s, where I got to be the young person on the panel uh, by dint of having started gaming literally four years later than Mike and Liz, uh, which is enough to put me in the second generation, absolutely, of gamers, or uh, third if you count. Dave and Gary is the first generation. Right. We, we were the non-fighty generation. Yes, we were the nice generation, the kindly generation, the kindly ones. So I assume that you also got to see uh, Poznan, and uh, possibly there might even have been food. So what was the uh, city like? I, I got to see a little bit of Poznan. Um, the hotel that I was in was on the eastern edge of the old city. It was right next to the cathedral, which is the oldest thing in the old city, going back to the 9th or rather 10th century AD, not in its current form, obviously, the Soviets and Swedes and other malefactors having intervened, uh, and, and lightning, God's way of saying, rebuild that cathedral, I'm bored with it. So there's the hotel where I was, which is in a sort of a, an oldie little districty, and then cathedral district, then actual Old Town, and then on the far end of Old Town, past sort of bushy town, I guess, is where the trade hall is. And so I saw that sort of middle half of Poznan, but not much more than the tram line. We did do a, a, a walkabout on Friday morning through the actual old city where uh, I learned all those fun facts about the cathedral and uh, got to see the town hall, which is a Renaissance design and construction and has goats that come out of the clock at noon and uh, battle uh, mechanical goats. So that was fun and historic, I'm sure. This iteration, the goats were both wearing Ukrainian flag colors, uh, which I saw a lot of in Poznan for obvious reasons. I felt that both goats wearing Ukrainian colors maybe sent a wrong message, but <laughs> no one agreed with me because they're not, you the know. goats are friends. They're just putting yeah. on a show. The goats the, are just the doing, a, they're, they're doing a work is what it is. Yeah. It's like what wrestling. if you tell one of the goats that he represents that the others, you don't want that. No, not then, unless the goat is like, you know, hit by a, Bayraktar. That's, right. I think probably, you know, there's heritage laws against that. Yeah, there probably are against droning the town hall. Although, I'll bet the heritage laws have not stopped any number of 
monkey shines in and around the town hall. And uh, in terms of food, we ate Polish food a great deal. We ate at a sort of a uh, old school, intentionally country cooking type restaurant the first night on Thursday. And then the actual convention, the guests all got a coupon for a cafeteria that was literally in the building with the VIP room. So that was Polish normal lunchateria food, which was fine because it's Polish food and who doesn't love Polish food. And uh, as for the rest of it, there was a lot of uh, falling asleep and uh, food trucks. So I got uh, a Polish sausage with uh, all kind of crazy toppings on it that was delicious and lots and lots of uh, fries from the food truck. So that was that was sort of uh, what was around. And then in terms of, you know, adventure, uh, there was not a lot of time or opportunity to go out exploring past that. And did you avail yourself of any exciting fruit-based liqueurs or other products of the Polish adult beverage business? Well, I did have a pink gin lemonade at a cafe in Poznan during our walking tour of the old town. And the waiter said, you know, that is alcohol. And I said, <laughs> oh, yes, I'm counting on it. So that was good fun. And there was a lot of beer, as you can expect. Poland, Poles enjoy a beer. And so I drank lots and lots of different Polish lagers and pilsners, which were delightful. But I think the Polish craft brew industry, like the American craft brew industry, is a little hoppier than the sort of macro Polish brews that I've had that are very mid-continent lager style in that they actually exist to quench your thirst. So that was lots of different flavor opportunities there. And yeah, my sense when I went to a craft beer place there a few years ago is that it's like a few years behind the North American curve. So I suppose by the next time you get invited back, it'll all be sours. Ooh, that's not what I need. <laughs> and the after party was held at the Cyber Machina Bar, which is apparently a chain of bars in Poland, where I, as well as Mike Mason, of course, perforce tried the Eye of Cthulhu, which is basically Zubrovka vodka, some kind of apple liqueur, grenadine, and, of course, eye. I mean, you if you're getting an Eye of Cthulhu, make sure it's made with actual eye. Don't allow them to fob you off with an olive. That's just my advice. Uh, but it was very delicious. Was the drink cosmically indifferent to you? I think the drink sort of embraced me. It may have been actually an eye of Sathagua when you think about it. And it was uh, record-breakingly hot for Poland, though not particularly hot for Chicago. So some of those little anime foxtails were looking a little limp by the end of the show. And you had to swan around going, uh, you call this hot? I did not. I, I did a little bit, but, you know, fortunately, the only people who had to listen to it were my wonderful handler, Natalia, who I think she was in need of a little bucking up because it was very hot for her. And so you have to explain that this is not as hot as it can be, Right. I feel. Well, I think now that we've all basked in uh, the vicarious heat of this uh, segment, it's time for us to head possibly to uh, some shag-carpeted confines. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrain store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. 
the rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the scratching of hideous fingers at the utmost rim, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us into once more the friendly confines of the gaming hut, except for that one cold spot where you should probably avoid sitting, you know, just because it's the cold spot. Where, where they saw that thing that one time. Anyway, uh, here, we're just going to, you know, roll out the dice, get the miniatures going. We got our graph paper. We got our character sheets and a spectral form, a spectral form of some kind. Oh, no, that was just a, an encumbrance form. Did, did one I, of the pencils near our graph paper move, Ken? Yeah, but uh, that's just because of that side of the table being cursed. So right. if you sit on the other side of the table, the pencils will not spin around and stab you. Cursed and, and uneven. Actually. Yeah, yeah, right. Cursed. It, well, that it was cursed by being badly built. At any rate, as you can perhaps guess from our cunning deployment of horror tropes here in the gaming hut, we're asking ourselves the question, how long can a horror scenario or gaming hut intro go before anything overtly <laughs> horrific or supernatural happens? Robin, how long is too long a takeoff? I know in a movie, it's uh, always longer than the director wants. How long is too long at the table? Well, of course, the obvious and boring answer is you can tell that uh, by looking at the other people at the table and seeing if they're engaged or not. And so if you've got a horror scenario, which is top heavy on investigation, right, there's usually an inciting incident and that'll have some sort of horror or violence or weirdness or something about it that you is enough to get them on edge for a while. But often it's the case, particularly for something investigative, for there to be a while where you're going around talking to people and getting clues and uh, finding out uh, what's going on. And then the, the, the actual overtly, you know, horrific parts don't occur until you go down into the tunnel or over to the old mill or, or what have you. And you can tell uh, by looking at the players whether they're perfectly happy to be doing that or you need to throw in some stuff. So the real answer is it, it's subjective, mm. uh, but it will also vary according to the tastes of the players so that you may have people who, you know, really want to get to the uh, scary stuff. You may have uh, people who are more interested in talking to people and going around and learning history facts and so forth. So this can vary. Now, in the case of Gumshoe, there is a technique that we've built into the structure of Gumshoe Adventures to enable you, the GM, to not have to wait until you get to a scary scene, which is the antagonist reaction. And these are a list of little, usually very quick ideas on things that can start to intrude to alert the characters to the fact that they are in a horror scenario, or at least they're in danger, or other people are trying to investigate what's going on. And so you can throw in things uh, when you require a little bit of tension and have antagonists come toward the uh, characters, or if they're perfectly happy and or perfectly confused already, don't need more tension, you can just uh, hold off on that. And so the real question is, does anyone become concerned that they're starting to fear that they're just in a regular real life thing happening? And, you know, the solution to that is, is pretty straightforward. Yeah, the um, as you say, it does depend on the scenario and it depends on the table. Some scenarios don't even have the overt act. As you say, the investigative scenarios can just begin with, you know, you guys wandering through good old Arkham on a sunny Tuesday. And then, you know, old Father Ignatowski approaches you and says, the footprints have started again. And then you have to find out what that means. And eventually you're drawn into the terrifying horror in the crypt involving the footprints. But for a long, old time, you're not even doing that. All you have is maybe a occult signal that something's going on. And I think that players will put up with more. And again, this is a broad generalization. My Delta Green players, they're actually happiest when they're going around talking to people and role playing. Um, and then once they have to go into the tunnels, they all sort of pull in on themselves and say, Oh no, this is a terrible <laughs> idea. Why are you, why are we always in tunnels? What's wrong with us? Which is, I think a good reaction that you want to encourage. Yes. And so I guess you could, you know, put that, we should put the topic on its head and go, how long can you stay in the happy safe zone before uh, the, the players start to get worried that they're not? And the horror genre in particular allows all sorts of little slow burn moments that let you remind them that there is uh, horror in the offering. So it can be just a thing, you know, that that pencil looking out of the corner of your eye, you thought you saw that move or, you know, you come back into the hotel room and it's several degrees colder, but strangely, the air conditioner isn't on. Um, and in fact, I think players are pretty oh no, good. we're in Poland. <laughs> um, players are often pretty good at scaring themselves. 
and often they react well to those small little omens and weird things that are out of place. More overtly, I think, scary sometimes than actually having to fight a monster or go down into a temple because how do you fight the thing that moved the pencil? You know, that keeping people in the realm of the unknown, I think, is a, a strong horror technique. And even like the, the paranormal activity movies are always disappointing. And the best things about them are their imitators of at least of the ones that I've seen because it's not a rewarding thing to see all 17 yeah. of them. At some point, just, just get a nanny cam and watch your own bedroom. Exactly. Getting about the same effect. Well, you don't want to see pencil move in your own bedroom. That's, but the, it, the slow burn at the beginning is often the most effective thing about those scenarios. And in most horror games, you've got a mechanism to make that an actual threat because you've got stability or composure or sanity or whatever it is in the system so that you can, or even the sort of meta level of, you know, roll, roll sense trouble. If you'd like, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, that can cost you points in gumshoot if, if you really want to find the trouble, which mm -hmm. is an interesting little dynamic. So I, I think never be afraid to uh, put in little bits of omens and, you know, the scratching in the wall may be, you know, much more effective than the deep one clambering through the window. Which I guess sort of implies that a scenario also you have to pay attention to the time delimitation a scenario you're planning to get over within one night, either because it's a convention scenario or because you've got, you know, one of the players is leaving for vacation and you, they want to end on a, on a banger, you know, whatever it is, then you have to judge how long do your players normally take in the crypt or how long do you think this particularly high horror moment is going to last at the table. And then you can just back plan from there and filter in the spore or the little weirdnesses as we talked about until they get to the, to the tunnel or to the crypt. And, you know, if you are keeping it within 15 minutes of your goal, you're doing pretty good in, in my experience. And then you can uh, telescope or shrink the amount of time they spend down in the crypt because it by definition is a place of horror and mystery that they don't necessarily know how long it takes to walk from here to the ghoul war. And on the you know original scenario, it, it took most of an evening searching now that, you know, they've finally gotten themselves into the crypt. It's like, Oh, nope. The ghouls are right there at the entrance of the crypt because they're waiting to boil out into the city. And you have just in time gotten here to stop that behavior. And then the big sort of uh, climactic roller coaster moment of horror begins. Often the tricky thing is actually not the, early simple little omens or the big obvious set to with the ghouls boiling out of their tunnel at the end, but this sort of mid range where the little omens are starting to wear, but you don't want to bring the ghoul out. And so that's the thing that I think often requires a bit more thinking. The, the second acts are hard mm -hmm. <laughs> and they are hard in horror too. So to have a sort of secondary threat that is, uh, not as bad as a whole bunch of ghouls, but has some sort of tangibility to it, has some sort of uh, physical menace or just sort of ups the stakes on the earlier omens, right? So that if, you know, if you're seeing strange owls out the window in the first act, well, maybe they run across a strange owl statue uh, in the second act. And then, of course, you pop it open and it's not a statue of an owl at all. But, you know, if you know how to rearrange the parts, it's a ghoul. And so it's about building from the little things to the medium things. And the medium things are often more of a, a head scratcher as to what exactly those would uh, consist of. Because in a lot of horror stories, they're actually much shorter. I think the, there are great horror novels, but the uh, horror story sort of shines uh, in a short story format. And uh, those often have the slow build, then the reveal. And I think many hours of gaming at the table require middle stuff that uh, may be a, a little harder to figure out what it is. Although the, I think that we're heading toward that when we talk about either it's a reification of the horror. It's a, uh, oh, this is getting real. Or it's an escalation of the horror. Oh, that's worse than I thought. And that can be just as much as you've heard about the murders. And that's what brought you down to this part of town. But then you see a murder and that's or, or see a, a, a victim, a corpse. And that's the, the moment of reality where it's like, oh, no, the the police report did not do this justice. This is much worse than you thought, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff is missing that was not mentioned in the police report or whatever. And you sort of amp up the sort of the gore and the viscerality or there is an overt moment that may not be horrific, but 
opens up the degree of, of uh, danger that you're in. You know, good old father, I forget his name. That's, that's how much we loved him, uh, vanishes. He's, he's taken from, uh, the very font where he was baptizing little Kashmir. He's gone. And, uh, the, uh, hysterical mother can just say the shadow took him and, uh, it was the footprints or whatever. And then that's a moment where now the stakes are higher. Our, our beloved NPC who we got along with and helped us. And we sort of hoped was invulnerable because he was a priest. He's been taken. He's gone. And now things are real. And we have a bigger, more immediate mystery to get to. And even though it did not directly threaten the player characters or perhaps even have something, you know, that you could even call horrific. Maybe the father did not vanish in front of witnesses, but you can see his drying footprints at the bottom of the baptismal font. And sure enough, he's gone. That should serve as an accelerant slash wake up call slash intensifier enough for your second act because your second act in a short story, as you say, is not usually the reveal. It's the, Oh no, I can't get the bus back to Arkham tonight moment in shadow of Rinsmith. That's not the reveal. That's the reveal. We have to stay in Innsmouth. That's not good. And things get worse from there. Yeah. It's the, it's the increasing of the stakes yeah. and everything you've mentioned is an upping of the stakes, whether it's the father disappearing or you don't have, an escape route. So you can ask yourself, you know, how does this get worse? In a typical horror story in other media, that's a thing that can happen to you. But in an investigative game, if you can swing it, it's most satisfying if it's something that you discover, that you stumble onto, and that you're moving further into the situation. And, you know, you're not in the ghoul tunnel, but you're in the cabin where the ghouls occasionally visit. And, oh, there's some stuff in the corners that you don't want to look at. Well, speaking of stuff in the corners, I think that uh, we've gone through all four corners of the gaming hut this time around, so it's time for us to slowly back out to something even more terrifying. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's pages glossy by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chihiro Yamada! Eric Parks! Evan Hughes! Garrett Fitzgerald! And Hyperlexic! The beep of Excel spreadsheets, the thrum of printing machines, <laughs> the tinkle of tiny coins rattling on the counter welcome us once more to the business... Of gaming. And, uh, Robin, often, you know, you might say the business of gaming is gaming and gaming is good. Well, the business of gaming is also printing and printing. Not so good, Robin. Not so good. <laughs> yes. Uh, people involved in not just uh, our tiny little corner of publishing, but the whole publishing industry writ large are saying in, in article after article about this, the quote is always, we've never seen anything like this before. And we're talking about the paper supply crunch. And it's going to uh, radically change a lot about how much uh, games cost, how quickly they're able to publish, and possibly even the forms uh, that things are going to be taking. And those changes will go beyond just our little corner of publishing, the adventure gaming industry, but much wider than that, because we've had a perfect storm of not just one thing, but about four or five different things really increasing the demand for paper at the same time that the ability to supply that demand is decreasing. 
And so I guess what we're doing here is, first of all, giving everybody a primer for what they can think to explain what's happening the next time they look at the price of a new game book and go into sticker shock and start to swoon. Yeah. And the first thing you should think is, is not this too shall pass, sadly, barring a complete reshoring of the American paper industry. We are in a new world and a world that is sticky down, as they say about prices. Beginning, you know, obviously with the pandemic, which disrupted supply chains and shipping models all over the world in every imaginable industry, among them books and among them printing. Many new things needed to be put in Amazon boxes, for example, and suddenly America's supply of domestic printers and supply of domestic paper makers shifted from making paper to making containers, boxes, not containers as in container ships, which is its own problem. But on top of that, we had a big freeze across the softwood south. Uh, So Georgia, South Carolina got caught in the Gulf freeze blew up spot prices for softwood pulp. Paper demand increased 5 to 10% as the pandemic ended. People went back to start of buying physical things. They weren't prepared for that. And the price of the softwood pulp in North America rose 40% in 2021 and 15% more so far in 2022. And 2022, may I remind you, is only half over. Paper prices, thusly, uh, increased up to 20% in 2021, and again, at least 15% more in this year. So that is one of those curves that it, it doesn't necessarily have a have a top to it because the institutional uh, infrastructure is changing underneath us as companies shift away from certain kinds of paper. So maybe the kind of fancy paper that you get in role-playing books or paper at a certain size, like the size you get in role-playing books, is going to go away, and they're going to only print those for enormous institutional clients, which we are not. Yeah, it's highly likely that printing companies are going to respond to the shortage by decreasing the number of different weights of paper that they offer. The weight is basically the the thickness and the, the feel comes into that as well, to different colors of paper. So there may be, you know, if you had a really inventive form factor for your game product that uh, depended on a relatively obscure trim of paper, as they called it, you may need to relay out your book and put it in a more conventional format. And the other thing, of course, that is driving prices of everything up is the price of oil has shot up and uh, shipping was already becoming very expensive, which was, you know, a first kick in the teeth mm-hmm. to the whole idea of a just-in-time global supply chain. Well, it turns out the thing about just-in-time is that it's fragile and now not just disruptions, but just the everyday movement of things from the pulp factory to the paper factory to the printer to the warehouses to the stores. Every stage of that is another stage of shipping and and shipping also. You know, we're not in a realm yet where renewables are substantially driving vehicles yet, and it doesn't look like there's going to be a fall in oil prices anytime soon. So that's another big exacerbating factor and that's going to literally show up again in the price tags of the uh, games you're looking to buy yeah and likewise labor shortage both at paper mills and even at truck companies continues to be a thing so even if you had the gas and the paper and the everything else you may not be able to hire a guy to drive it to the store so it's not again as bad as it was at the peak of 2021 raising the wages seems to have had some effect but it's not what it is supposed to be according to the spreadsheets of some dolt at McKinsey who thought outsourcing everything to China made sense. Then we also have the sort of one-off events such as the first and largest paper mill strike at a paper company in Finland that turns out to produce most of the paper for Europe. And they went on a strike because their management thought this would be a great time to break the union. That seems not the way to think if you're a Finnish paper company, but I'm not the expert. And it turns out it was not the time to break the union. Yes. In a, in a time of increased labor power, let's let's try and break the union. This yep. is, I, I guess they figured this was their last shot. They, before, yeah, they have to get out ahead of it before they're really screwed. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the, the strike was most of the first part of this year. It, it began on January 1st, ended at the end of April. But even with the strike over, it takes four to eight weeks to get everything back up to speed because those are big machines that had to keep running and they weren't. So some European countries are literally seeing 40% of their paper needs unfilled. So, you know, role-playing game companies are seeing 
you know, let's say an average role-playing game company has about the same throw weight as an average European country. So you can imagine <laughs> that those numbers scale. And not only uh, is there, uh, you know, that's one end of the paper manufacturing, but even those plants that were not on strike had trouble because of the commodities crunch, which is yet another disruptive supply chain issue and increasing demand issue, didn't have the chemicals that they needed to turn pulp into paper. And so that might be a thing that irons out over time. You also get the fact that during the pandemic, book sales went up. Now, mind you, that was up from a previous slip in book sales. But when people were at home, guess what? They wanted to look at books and they didn't want to look at them all on their devices. They wanted physical books and those all got printed. They got put into boxes that had to be manufactured. And again, this has uh, decreased the uh, supply of paper. And another ironic part of this is that the packaged goods industry is now using more and more paper because they're trying to shift from single-use plastic. And that, of course, means paper is the other alternative. That is better for the environment on its face, but ironically raises this prospect of more pressure on logging old growth forests in order mm -hmm. to make up for the, you know, the increased demand. Because, of course, trees don't grow as quickly as, say, wheat or, <laughs> you know, dill. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, the, the crop you put down that you figured was perfectly good for supplies in 30 years, which is about the cycle of, of most major paper trees, turns out to have been wrong <laughs> because it, it went up. And now you have a situation where, you know, you're coming off the harvest in, in Georgia or South Carolina or wherever. This even assumes no giant freeze in 2020. But you've got a situation where, yeah, the guy in 1990 who planted these trees figured, well, you can't possibly use more paper than this. And it turns out you can. And once more, everyone on that chain had to have been doing their job, not just correctly, but almost prophetically for the system to keep working. And the good thing about a global supply chain used to be, well, if Georgia didn't think ahead, Finland probably did. And so you could get the pulp from there. Or guess what's the other big supplier of paper softwood outside North America, Robin? That's right. It's Russia. And guess what Russia's doing right now? Being sanctioned. So they can't necessarily, even if they were out there milling their wood pulp, they're not shipping it because it's illegal to buy it necessarily. So we're in a situation where we've lost a, a big source of the raw materials that goes in over and above losing huge amounts of just the physical capacity to ship it as China continues to lock down, let's say, every one of its major ports over and over and over. And that, of course, throws everything else ever further into a cocked hat. Right. So, so when you're paying more for a board game, remember, you're helping Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. That's what's going on. And indeed, you very much are paying more and you're going to keep paying more. Right now, based solely on paper costs, a RPG book that used to cost $40 mathematically should cost $100. Now, efforts are being made, I assume, at every company to lower that horrific sticker shock number. But... If they drift closer to $60 than you're used to paying, that just may be the new normal for a bit. And The entire Pelgrain line is underpriced. Yes. Well, it's always so been underpriced. Buy now, everybody. Stretch to the web store. Yeah. Use, use the voucher code <laughs> Ken and Robin sent you. Use the voucher code Global Meltdown. Yeah. And it is global, so it affects, the, again, the mainstream industry as well. Mainstream nonfiction authors are now being told, keep it under 100,000 words. We need small books now. Yeah. Um, so you may need to get used to, uh, you know, the smaller books, the big, you know, the giant blockbuster. It used to be that having a big, big fat fantasy book was a selling point. And my argument that a lot of genre fiction should be closer to 60,000 words per novel, that may become a, a an argument again, just out of uh, price and form factor. Yes, uh, that curse you for making that wish on a monkey's paw, Robin. Well, you know, I, I was out of kangaroo paws that week. Exactly. You wish on the paw you have, not the paw you wish you had. Exactly right. And, of course, scheduling is an another big part of this because if there's a shortage, the RPG industry has sort of been used to an uptick in the number of printers and their hunger to get role-playing game business. And so, consequently, even... A few years ago, you used to be able to, at the very last minute, send off your PDF screeching hot to the printer. And, you know, with a few week turnaround, suddenly you would have books ready at Gen Con. Well, now they're quoting, well, we might have paper in 2023, <laughs> but 
you got to commit three months ahead so that we or we buy your paper when you place the order, and then three months later we begin printing it. Well, uh, that you know rules out the Indiana Jones sliding under the door style of publishing that we have gotten used to in our loosey goosey fashion. And the, the very largest companies, the you know the your Watsies and so forth, have always you know had more professional scheduling because they have more products and an ongoing uh, pipeline. But the companies that do the beautifully hand-tooled things that you've been anxiously waiting for to arrive, well, now we're building another at least three months, if not more, into the timing of those as well. And so this is beginning to get publishers thinking, well, can we can we get people to buy PDFs? Because people do buy PDFs, but they never really picked up on it to the extent that I think we thought they would or that would fulfill the promise of, well, we just want to create something that's like ripped from the headlines and have a short production window and get it out to people and they'll buy it in beautiful PDF format and then later we'll anthologize it. People say that they want this and this varies from company to company, but often that saying that they want it does not result in in actual purchases. So um, (laughs) whether the sticker shock of $60 to $100 core books changes people's minds about how they consume game material and gets them to really embrace PDF as the real thing rather than a preview to the book that they're looking forward to getting is another question. There are, you know, the the VTT realm that has micro uh, transactions being a big deal, but the, you know, the trad space that you and I are in can, people haven't really gone for that yet. And it'll be interesting to see whether price drives people into, you know, virtual... But what do we call them? NFTs. Maybe yeah, we call them NFTs. Th- that can't go wrong. You may also see a shift from mass production of books, where you uh, lower the cost by printing a lot of them to get the unit cost down. People, if you're starting your first role-playing game, you should never have done that. Never do that. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but print-on-demand and the slightly discernible lower quality of print-on-demand may become more of a standard and a more thing that people expect, even in mainstream publishing. So, Ken, is there a message to people that uh, other than, you know, expect the worst, be prepared to buy some beautiful electrons that we'll be selling you uh, in the future? Well, I mean, there's the it'll get worse until it gets better message, which I think is nobody's favorite message. But this was happening even without the pandemic, I guess, is the other part of that message that at some point, for example, Tour de Lovecraft could not be printed in China because China is getting ever more totalitarian and god awful. And over and above the moral question, there's the fact you can't print a book that mentions Tibet without propagandistic intent anymore in China. And that cuts out a lot of role playing games. Plus, many, many role playing games are run by people that don't necessarily want to do slave labor. So your costs were already going up. Huge parts of the chain were already being cut out. It's only intensified, and it does actually look like, barring a shift to the system, whether that be a shift to renewable-powered cars driving that leg of the chain down, or a shift to uh, re-onshoring printing driving other legs of the chain down, we're in a period of transition where, I guess we can say, invest in a really good tablet so that reading the book at the game is less inconvenient than it might be. Right. And if you want to set up a uh, printing company or a forest, be our guest. Yeah, please do. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release.
It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where we're not really sure it stands in the borderland of many different huts between the the unusual, the crackpot, uh, the unexplainable. But we know where we are when we look over into the corner, and there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're together enjoying a kombucha. We look out the window, there's an alien big cat screaming on the moor, and this time around, the alien big cat is screaming a request from beloved Patreon backer and member of my gaming group, Scott Wachter, who wants to know about the Fresno Nightcrawler. This, I, I gotta say, I appreciate the world of weirdness throwing up a new cryptid and a cryptid that is genuinely peculiar. Yeah. It's one that's even hard to describe when you just hear it verbally. You go, what? That can't possibly be. And then you look at an image or the supposed CCTV cameras, images of it, and you go, well, that's odd. Mm -hmm. Ken, tell us about the Fresno Nightcrawler. All right. Uh, It is so named because its first known appearance was in Fresno. It was seen by a guy named Jose who had set up a camera because area hoodlums had been stealing his bike. And so he wanted to catch him and he's got his camera going. His dogs are barking. He looks at the camera to see what's making his dogs bark. And he sees these weird figures moving across his lawn because he did a sort of DIY security system. He couldn't rewind because that erased the tape. So he started filming the footage off of his monitor with a camcorder, which explains part of why that footage is so uh, terrible. So beautifully, beautifully blurry. Exactly. He then calls the Univision television station in Fresno and says, I've got a thing. They call in a paranormal investigator slash radio host named Victor Camacho, who uh, investigates Jose, sadly. Jose, by the way, seems genuinely to have been uh, seriously unnerved and uh, terrified by his brush with the uh, Fresno Nightcrawler in a way that experiencers often turn out to be. And you think, well, you just saw a light. What's the big thing? But they have a more powerful psychological reaction. Certainly that was true of Jose. He said, keep my name out of it. I don't want to be involved anymore. I regret having ever brought anyone in. And he later died in a car accident. So we can't go back to the source. The Obviously the original footage is gone. We just have the tape of the tape that was, uh, snaffled onto by Victor Camacho. Then after that tape was played at a MUFON conference in 20, 2008 and on a TV show in 2010, coincidentally, a ufologist named Dovis X life Operior said that he <laughs> got that a tape, real name Dovis X life. Uh, he got a videotape that he says was sent to him by an informant in Yosemite national park showing the nightcrawler bipeds moving past some big trees. He and a buddy went out and recreated that footage with a stroller to indicate the relative size of the bipeds. And right. this is so how you're saying bipeds. Yeah. I think this is a point where you pause and explain that they're sort of like walking upside down V's or an empty pair of pants. They're, they're described as humanoid, but that's stretching the definition of humanoid. Yeah. That they literally are. Just long white legs. Some say you can see stilt-like feet. I beg to differ. There's no visible arms. There's no visible head, although there's a sort of a a top of the pants, a torso, a lower torso, or a whatever you want to call it. They're between 18 inches and 4 foot 6, if you believe Dovis X-Life Operior's opsec there. And something distinctively muppety about them. Yeah, they 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 walk with a sort of a weird, as you say, a, a puppety type stride that definitely seems unnatural when they do it. Often they appear in pairs, uh, a big one and a small one. They sort of look, as you say, like a pair of, of, of white pajama pants or, or maybe parachute pants seen out walking around. In short, they are the pants with no one inside them from Dr. Seuss's immortal What Was I Scared Of? A, a story that appears in the classic Sneetches and other stories from 1961. So, this may be a Dr. Seuss tulpa. I should say the other sort of the two and a half sighting of the Fresno Nightcrawler has been a sighting in Poland. And we know it was in Poland because the YouTube that was posted says Fresno Nightcrawler seen in Poland and then has the worst shot of the three of blurry pants moving across the screen. Anomalists have found similar cases to similarly biped things, but that don't match any of the other descriptions. So you have a six foot seven inch 
dark gray biped seen in Manchester, Indiana in 2004. And then you have something that looks sort of like that uh, seen in Carmel, Ohio in 2014 near the site of the Hopewell Earthwork Fort Hill, I should point out, in Carmel, Ohio. And the witness, who, by the way, is completely anonymous, the only information we have is a paragraph that has been copy-pasted across the internet. Yes, and, and that has a bit of a tang of, like, the old 19th century make-em-ups to it. There's, mm-hmm. But there's there's a cool detail where this ex-Marine also mentions that he has a fairy circle on his property, that there's a circle of green grass that, unlike the rest of the lawn, never stops being green. It never, I guess, when it gets snow on it or whatever, but it's, you know, the, the rest of the lawn can dry out, but this circle remains green. And so this opens us back into a sort of a Magonian uh, explanation of, you know, that they're just because they're weird doesn't mean they're from space. They could be from uh, an alternate dimension. And they do. There seems to be something a little bit fey about them. Right. And of course, what that means is someone immediately made up a, a Native American legend, which actual researchers said, I see no Native American legend of a biped pants creature. You are making things up. Uh, there have been similar sort of friend of a friend. My friend in Kentucky sent me this. She said that he, she got it from her friend in California. Photos of wooden statues of similar looking bipeds. Again, they're very tall. They're not right. little tiny statues. But who made them when they were made? And, and a wooden biped, less impressive than an actual animated weird white thing right. crawling across your lawn. And um, uh, the uh, uh, fact or faked episode I alluded to in 2010 said that they couldn't fake that footage, but YouTubers have easily faked that footage. So, right. And I haven't seen fact or fake, but I bet they lots of times say that things can't be faked. Yeah, I feel like that's more their fact or faked. Yes, no, no one watches... Fact or faked for faked. Yeah. Mythbusters is the only show that actually enjoyed busting myths. And so nobody else does uh, because fun ruining is is wrong and you shouldn't do it. Well, they had the biggest brand. So just all the people who wanted fun ruined went to them. Right. Exactly. They set up the fun ruining franchise that, that beat them all. But anyway, it can be faked. Standard way to fake it is you put a clothesline, a black clothesline across a lawn. You suspend some weird pants from that clothesline with a stick down the leg part of it, and then you tilt the clothesline such that the pants walk themselves across the lawn. Then you film it with a bad camera and then film that bad camera footage off a monitor, and it turns out you kind of get Fresno Nightcrawler pants. But the city of Fresno has embraced the Nightcrawler as their as their very own cryptid because previously Fresno was known for being the punchline of any joke, to which the answer was Fresno. And so now I'm sure we are moments away from their little league team being renamed the Fresno Nightcrawlers. Right. And, and like Mothman, it's it's like a, a one of a kind. It's not like just another lake monster or, or big. No. Fan. Yeah. It, it's its own special, wonderful thing. You do only have, you know, leaving out the sort of copy pasta sighting from Carmel, Ohio, which is seven feet tall. So it's, yeah. it's a big variant and is gray, not white. Other difference and has backward bending knees. Again, not a feature of. But it otherwise would be a complete, you know, isolated outlier cryptid. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a bit of a coattail or slack rider, I guess. Right. Not quite isolated because it does very much sound like the creature in Manchester, Indiana. But the single moment, the moment of Jose does feel like, to the extent these anything is authentic, it feels like an authentic case of an experiencer. Jose almost certainly did not fake the pants. His brother probably did not fake the pants. He was genuinely terrified and unnerved. The family moved to get away from the pants house. They didn't want any part of the the night crawlers. That strikes me as a genuine experience moment, even if what he experienced was neighborhood kids screwing around and garbage camera. But the, you know, the brain is a magic box. Stuff goes in, does not always come out the same direction. Right. And so a horror scenario that features these beings, they don't seem outwardly uh, aggressive or, or even particularly malevolent, except that they do walk creepy. They certainly don't, you know, have claws or, you know, pseudopods or anything much they could attack you, right? They could, I guess, kick you with a floppy leg. That seems less than impressive. So it does seem like they are, uh, to, to hark back to uh, a previous segment, they're sort of an escalation of the weird, right? That if something is going on at this property that 
you know, it has a fairy ring and then it has the, you know, the, the cryptid shows up, that it's a symptom of something else that's going on. They're not the main malevolent force. They're sort of drawn to the energy of whatever it is. So this could be, you know, your reality necromancer or it could be, you know, the evil fairies coming uh, to get us or to toy with us or, or so forth, or uh, just the uh, psychic effect of some sort of brainwave uh, manipulation. So there's all sorts of different things that the Nightcrawler could be a symptom of without necessarily being a credible main threat for a group of uh, armed investigators. Yeah, if, you, if you're looking for uh, folkloric antecedents, I think that you've hit it on the head when you talk about fairies, because it is very much the you know, fairy trod. It's these nightcrawlers. They go in this little path across your vision. You never see them again, but that messes you up. And that's just straight up fairy lore. So you could say that uh, the Sluag, the hosts of the angry dead have entered Fresno. The nightcrawlers were just sort of their advanced guard. And ever since 2007, Fresno has been plagued by the, the dark Fay, the unseelie court, whatever you want to call it. Or you can say, that, you know, the, the connection was summoned into existence by some sort of, uh, you know, Central Valley uh, magician trying to get the rain back or trying to, you know, pursue some other weird uh, in, encounter out there in flyover California. And that that sort of remote quality of it, the fact that it's, you know, these things appear as supernatural, uh, the TV show intuited in, you know, flyover country, not in, you know, network America, that that's also part of fairy lore. Fairies, even in medieval times, didn't show up in Paris. They showed up in, you know, the Fresno of ancient France. Uh, Brittany, I believe yeah, Brittany, it's the Fresno. Basically. And you had your sightings and your weird stuff there. So to the extent you want to get sociocultural with it, uh, you could tie that into a, a unknown armies sort of an, a, a world where uh, different cultural weights are deforming the world in different ways. That could also be a an esoterrorist bit where flyover esoterrorists have a different vibe than big city esoterrorists. And you thought that you'd seen the worst that human beings could uh, summon in uh, London or Berlin or San Antonio. Well, now you're in Fresno and things get desperate and weird, even compared to the regular Outer Dark. Right, because if, if an esoterrorist is using the legend of uh, this particular cryptid to summon something, that something can be quite aggressive and horrible. It might, you know, start out looking like a pair of pants, but uh, next time you see it, it's got legs with hideous scythes on them. And uh, you just know that if you don't track it down before it develops the head that it can see with, that it's going to turn into some, you know, hideous, awful uh, predator so that each new part of it that grows uh, is then becoming, you know, a, a genuine threat. And so that could be a way to, if you've got, you know, a whole group full of Fresno Nightcrawler fans and they don't want it to just be a, a red herring about the real threat, you know, it could be like a Build-A-Bear. It could be a Build-A-Cryptid. It could get worse and horrible and more demonic as it goes. And more like, the, like the fairy tale of the giant that uh, shows up boots first, then legs, then hips, then chest. And eventually, you know, his whole head shows up and our hero has to do something about it. Yeah, well, just go to show that uh, if you have to make up an Indian legend, you're making it up. But if you go back into fairy tales, maybe we've already found out who it is, that that's just part of a giant. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> that sort of also suggests that the the seven-footers seen elsewhere, you know, they've had a little while more to grow. And uh, that was like uh, 2004, 2014. You know, Carmel might have a full-on uh, giant monster by this point that is just uh, uh, waiting uh, for the... Uh, full end of the pandemic to come out and start laying waste to the area. Well, once we've warned Carmel, Ohio, as we do, I think, at the end of every episode, yes. it's time for us to walk away with our floppy legs and uh, possibly get caught on camera, but we'll be back uh, next week, uh, maybe with arms. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Avert the overt horror of this podcast disappearing by joining such heroic backers as... Jonathan Donald. James Kiley. John Buckley. Todd W. Olson. And James Stewart. Where this show works drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Dispense space opera gaming advice with our latest design, 
Don't be a space weasel. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>